This Prop Talk recording is a news and opinion product that is the property of Original Prop Blog LLC, all rights reserved. Original Prop Blog LLC is not responsible for any statements or opinions expressed by the guests of this program. Live on tape from the OPB studios in Northern California, it's Prop Talk. Brought to you by the Original Prop Blog, we're making analog connections across the world. Each podcast features one-on-one chats with special guests to discuss the hobby of collecting original movie props and costumes. The Original Prop Blog is the original source of news, information, and opinion about authentic popular culture artifacts and memorabilia from film and television. Now, let's join our host, Jason DeBorg. When was the last time you did one of these? Oh my god, dude! It's been—I think it's been over a year. It's been a while. <laughs> this, is, this is the triumphant return. Yes. Yeah. I—I've uh, been bad. So, welcome to Prop Talk. Today, my guest is Troika Brodsky. How's it going? I said your last name right, right? Yeah, Brodsky. Yeah, I don't think I've ever said it out loud before. <laughs> I, I actually don't say it that out loud, <laughs> out loud that often either. Yeah. So I'm talking to you today because you were auctioning off a ton of Lord of the Rings props. Why don't we, I know we were kind of joking about it. This is like the mullet of podcast interviews because we're going to do the business in the front and party in the back. So let's, oh, yeah. let's talk about the um, the business side of it and the auction and all the details and stuff. And then we'll kind of delve into your background as a collector and how we got to know each other and all that good stuff. So sounds like a plan. Yeah. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the Julian's auction coming up? All right. So the Julian's auction, it's uh, December 5th. It's on a Thursday and they've actually got a few other auctions going on that weekend. I think they've got a really cool piece from Banksy that they're, they're auctioning off. But um, it's December 5th and I Really, it was important to me that the auction coincided with the release of uh, the new Hobbit film. So I knew I was looking for an early December auction. And so that's that's the reason why that sort of plopped right where that is. So we've got the auction in December. And uh, starting this month, actually, on the, I want to say the 22nd or 23rd of October, they're doing an exhibition over in Ireland, uh, a little north of Dublin, uh, at a place called uh, Newridge, and um, it's a, it's just a very cool museum there. And they've done some stuff in conjunction with Julian's before. I know I was online and I saw a bunch of pictures from when they had a bunch of Michael Jackson stuff on display there. And uh, looks like a really really cool place. But so they're going to do a, a month long exhibition there, and that's sort of the opportunity for uh, you know folks from the UK and and whoever wants to hop over there to see this stuff really professionally um, displayed. And it's actually something I've never seen. I've done a bunch of displays with the collection, but it's always just been me or me and my girlfriend. Um, right. You know, setting, setting the things up and putting them in plexiglass cases, but sort of doing the best we can. And this is going to be the first time it's really gotten the professional treatment. And I, I'm really excited to see, see how it turns out. But so that'll go on until I want to say November 17th, and then the collection will come back over to the states, and they'll do a showing at the beginning of December, and then they'll have the auction. Now, so. um, 
How many lots are going to be in the auction? Um, you know what? Uh, let's let's take a look here. I'm I'm actually as we speak still trying to finish writing catalog descriptions for everything, which has been a unique pleasure all of its own. That's that's the one thing I didn't entirely grasp the reality of what I was getting myself <laughs> into was uh, attempting to write these. But we are the official count is ninety two. Yeah, it looks now. like ninety two. So. Yeah, and I know, you know, we both know I'm not, like, a huge Lord of the Rings fan, so I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to this this uh, film trilogy, but um, it doesn't seem like hardly anything has ever been sold other than a few pieces, like, you know, obviously the, the bow that was sold in Profiles. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about kind of what's out there um, that's you know, like the Hasbro pieces, you know, maybe yeah. maybe you could just talk a little bit about those so people kind of have an understanding of those, you know, key pieces and, and how they got out there. Yeah, uh, Lord of the Rings is, is definitely a, a unique franchise. Uh, Peter Jackson is famously a collector himself. You can go online and see pictures of him hugging his, his Doctor <laughs> Who props and you know, he's a massive King Kong fan and, and famously owns a bunch of the, the old stop motion armatures. And I mean, that that is part of this guy's DNA. Right. And so suddenly you have a guy who's sort of wired like us, who's just a massive, massive film geek. But suddenly now he's making a massive, you know, genre trilogy of films where they're making 100,000 props and costumes. So it was really important to him to, to tightly control that and to keep that. Um, you know, this is a guy who had, had grown up around collectors and he'd also watched sort of what some of the other studios had done. He'd watched what George Lucas had done with his archive. And so fairly quickly on into the production, it, it became important for him to sort of wrangle control over all of that. So if you were an extra on the film and they were kidding you out to be a, you know, like a background elf for the day, you would sign in and, you know, and find out everything you'd have. Um, so it wasn't really like stuff was, was going out the back door on the production. Right. So what you end up with is a very small amount of stuff that's gone out there that is, you know, that was either released very early on through New Line Cinema before Peter Jackson uh, sort of had control of everything and ownership of everything at Wingnut, um, or things that were directly gifted out to cast and crew. Um, you know, there's just there's just not that much stuff out there to be had. There'll be a little bit of stuff that shows up after the final Hobbit film comes out, but on a whole, um, pretty much everything is with Peter Jackson in his archive uh, with Wingnut Studios, and most certainly, um, at, you know, the majority of the full-on hero items. So I've got a Sting Sword in the auction. And it is a beautiful piece, and it was used left and right. And, um, you know, the blade is metal and everything, but it is technically not a hero sword. The, the hero version of that, they would have made four or five of those, and they would have had steel blades. They would have made, you know, they would have been made exactly like a, a real version of that sword would have been. They were, they were weighted and everything, and they're gorgeous. And, you know, that's the stuff that, you can pretty much guarantee is with Peter Jackson. Um, I have no idea what version of the sword would have been gifted to Elijah Wood. I know he's been on 
Stephen Colbert. Well, geez, both of them were on his show, um, clanking their their gifted sting swords around. But um, but y- you can bet that all of that sort of metal, handmade, handcrafted stuff that the majority of that's going to be in his archive. And so the bulk of the stuff that I have got um, is generally um, stunt and. I think a lot of people in our hobby, immediately when they hear stunt, they assume that it's something made out of foam or made out of rubber that was made so people couldn't get hurt. But on the Lord of the Rings, um, they did have rubber versions of things and foam versions of things, but they also had um, stunt versions of stuff that was still made to look exactly like the hero stuff and hold up on camera with the exact same level of detailing and weathering. And so it just meant in the case of the swords... Um, you'd have a couple steel versions um, for close-ups. But most of what you see on camera are these lightweight aluminum versions of these weapons. Um, and they are identically weathered in every way. Uh, the only difference is they probably saw a heck of a lot more use. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's sort of where that's at. And I got off topic a bit there, but getting back to overall rarity of this stuff, um, you know, they basically put the entire country to work. Anyone who was a craftsman, if you were the, the best maker of barrels in the country, you were probably making the barrels. If you were <laughs> the, the most well-known maker of boots, you know, you, you were probably the guy who made all the boots. They put everyone to work, and they, they famously made over 100,000 props and costumes, um, but they kept everything, and they've got it. And originally, most collectors who were interested in going after this stuff, we all assumed there would be a ton of it, mm-hmm. that it would just flood the market. Because at the time, New Line Cinema had an online auction house. Yeah, and I remember um, that. Yeah, and it was, it was really well run. It, it, was, it was a very cool thing to see from the studio, and they had stuff from all sorts of different films. They sold a ton of stuff from the Austin Powers movies and the Blade movies. Um, you name it, and they did for a couple years offer a number of items from Lord of the Rings. So, you know, when I was really first starting to learn about the production and learn about the props and looking for stuff, the other collectors who were sort of doing the same thing, we all just assumed at some point New Line was going to have a massive sale. Right. And, uh, you know, I even remember a published interview from someone at New Line who literally said that's what they were going to do. Um, so when those first few things started coming out, people didn't really want to go nuts for it in terms of money. Cause we all assumed, you know, if you wanted something, you were going to be able to get it. Right. And then at some point, um, and the story goes that I understand is that Peter Jackson got back ownership of all of the props from new line in lieu of some form of payment for working on the extended editions of the DVDs. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't confirm that story, but I've heard it from a bunch of people, and it does make sense to me. Um, you know, the studio owned all the props. He wanted to make sure that they were cared for and kept and archived, and he didn't like the idea of, you know, all of this beautiful stuff just flooding the market. Right. Um, you know, you, you hear about props and costumes that get cut up and, and sold off in a little bit of pieces by studios, and I think just the whole concept of that freaked him out. Um, so at some point, he got everything on lockdown. And what that means is a little bit of stuff got out, 
and then there was a few more things that went out officially to like licensees. And then he gifted this, you know, all the principal cast members were gifted something sort of famously uh, when they're shooting wrapped, and you can see all that on the bonus stuff on the DVDs. But otherwise, there's there's not a lot of stuff out there. And so for 100,000 pieces, you know, if my collection's 92, and I could say, you know, just by what I know of what else is out there privately, maybe, maybe you add another... 20 or 30 items to that. And I'm not saying that those 20, 30 items are necessarily significant. You know, I know, I know people who are very excited just to have like a piece of tile from the floor of one of the sets. Um, so there just is not a lot out there. And then at the same time, you have a film franchise that, you know, made billions worldwide and, you know, rang up the Academy Awards. Yeah. And for the, for the most part is very beloved. I mean, obviously, there's there's people like you who who you know didn't really get into it and I'm not about to argue with someone if they're going to tell me that there's a lot of walking in those films. I yeah. mean, they they and a lot they, of a lot of got, mumbling too. Like what did they, they guys to, say? <laughs> they need to walk a ring to a mountain, and you know it's in and of itself it's not terribly sophisticated, but you know from a filmmaking standpoint, it, it is a triumph. I mean, what was accomplished, he was trying to get those made. It was going to be one movie, then it was going to be two movies. They were The fact that those even got filmed and that they're even, you know, that they're as good as they are is a minor miracle. Yeah. Um, and I think what shows up on screen, I mean, it, it is pretty amazing. And when it comes to props, I mean, I am a prop lover. I was collecting props before i ever bought a lord of the rings prop right and what the artist at weta workshop accomplished is staggering and when you see this stuff and and if you watch any of the behind the scenes stuff people who are fans sort of know the stories at, at this point if you're a big fan you can probably rattle off a lot of the artist names who work at weta workshop right. because they got so much screen time on these behind the scenes things but they'd make suits of armor that would have detailing on the inside of the armor that would never be seen on camera. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, that was what they chose to do and how they chose to, to go after this. And they, they thought that they would get better performances out of their actors if you know, they, were, they were suiting them up in things that felt authentic. Right. And right. so the props are just absolutely gorgeous. And the fact that the stunt props are identical in, in, in the level of detailing um, to the hero stuff. That's, that's not usually how it works. Right. So for me as a collector, it, it's sort of, I mean, clearly I think this stuff is really great. Right. <laughs> and a lot of other people do as well. But so it's, you've got a mix of a beloved franchise with a huge audience worldwide and then, you know, extreme scarcity. Yeah, and that that's been responsible for driving up the value of these pieces, um, and and pushing it into a realm that you don't generally see for for modern films. Right. Um, so it's it's sort of a an interesting perfect storm uh, at the moment. So the obvious question would be, you know, you've spent the last ten years collecting all this stuff, and people probably want to know why why you decided to part with most or all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm, I'm happy 
right. about it or, or particularly excited. I, I love this stuff. And, you know, boxing up some of it to send it off to the auction house, I felt like I was about to send off a child to boarding school or something <laughs> and knew they weren't ever coming back. Like, yeah. it, it, it's, it was and is hard. And for anyone, I mean, putting a collection together and then parting with it is, that happens all the time. It's, it's, if you're a collector, you've, you've probably done that at some point mm-hmm. because whether for financial reasons or, you know, space limitations at our home, there's, there's generally only so far you can take something. Um, and it's hard. In this case, uh, reality on a bunch of different fronts came in. Uh, my father got ill earlier in the year. Um, and there's, there's, there's financial concerns for that long term. Um, there's also the fact that um, the stuff doesn't fit in my home. <laughs> when I started collecting Lord of the Rings, when I got my first piece, which was Gimli's Battle Axe, I didn't necessarily think I'd ever find anything else. Right. Um, and I kept learning, and I kept researching, and I kept doing detective work, which people do, and I would find something else, and then I would find something else. And at one point, suddenly I had, you know, a pretty good collection, but it still definitely could fit in a closet if it needed to. <laughs> and then I, you know, came across a couple, a couple troves of, a, of, a, of a hordes of more stuff. And suddenly I was, you know, when I, when I pulled the trigger on a life-size ring wraith costume that is actually built up on a, on a full-on display by Weta, meaning I can't just take the costume and put it in a box and fold it up. Like, this thing takes up seven feet of, you know, square space. It doesn't fit through the front door of any home I've ever lived in. So um, it's kind of like and, the, it's like a Bowflex, but in oh yeah. collecting. <laughs> oh yeah, there was I was it it showed up at the storage locker that it ended up living in, <laughs> and it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it was never going to be able. Uh, I work at a brewery. This thing was never. I was. I'm never going to live in a house large enough where this thing could just sort of casually be off next to my television and you know it just wasn't going to happen <laughs> and so the thing would come out when i would do exhibitions and people would love it and people would take pictures with it and it was awesome and then i'd get a moving truck and i'd go put him back in his storage locker so you know the collection grew and suddenly i had pieces that i was literally paying money each month to keep in storage right and at that point things aren't very practical. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've been collecting for years and I've continued to do it. And I've gotten a great kick out of being able to do shows and share them with fans, but those things don't come along very often and they're not easy to put together at all. Um, I've in fact, every single time I've done something like that, it's probably taken years off my life in terms of stress (laughs) and anxiety. Um, But so when, when the, when the real world sort of came knocking on what's turned out to be a pretty surreal year for me, um, sitting back and thinking about all of my priorities and then realizing I have this collection of stuff that other than two or three pieces that I actually would keep in my living room at my house, everything else was suddenly in storage. Right. Um, I wasn't in a position where 
where these were things that I was able to share with people and enjoy and look at every day. And then when you have things happen, like last December, when the legless bow went for sale and it went nuts, you start looking at things very differently. Um, I didn't buy this stuff as an investment. I didn't buy this stuff, you know, like I was picking stocks. I bought it and I collected it because I love it. But the second you see something do what that bow did, you know, it's not that I have expectations that my collection is going to repeat that. Um, That was the first time, I mean, that was effectively the first time anyone had seen something significant come up for sale. Um, And for all anyone knew, they weren't going to see anything else. So I I can understand how that price could do what it did and not be repeated. Right. But at the same time, if my stuff performs at a fraction of that, um, that's that's really, really significant in a life-changing way for me and my family. Right. And so at that point, when you start having conversations with your family, <laughs> where you're like, okay, well, uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I work at a small craft brewery. I live in a, you know, a tw- 12... 1200 square foot house in in St. Louis, Missouri and I don't think I don't think my situation is sort of likely to change at all. Right. Um it, when we really started talking about it, it became clear pretty quickly that this is what needed to happen. And I feel good about it. It's sad and uh you know, for <laughs> I I liked being in a in a very small club of people who could say they had a sting sword. <laughs> but you know, that's going to go to someone else who's also going to be insanely excited to have it. And if this all works out, it's going to, it's going to really help us out and make a big difference in my life. And that to me, you know, I, I think it sort of comes down to when the auction got announced, I, I was sort of following everything. I saw some comments on some message board and, people were just like, oh, I wish I could afford this. <laughs> and, and I sort of looked at it for a second and thought to myself, yeah, I <laughs> kind of feel the exact same way. Because yeah. <laughs> if I was loaded, I wouldn't be selling this stuff. It right. would, I'd have my giant, awesome, like, Lord of the Rings rumpus room, and I'd, <laughs> you know, I'd invite friends over to reenact battles. Um, Carefully. Try, I yeah, I, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's the reality of the situation and the stuff is it's i've i've gotten there's been so much positive that's come from it uh i've met a lot of good friends i've uh had some very cool conversations i've done some very cool exhibitions i've gotten to travel with the collection um there's been so many cool things and memories that i'm going to have from the last 10 plus years of putting this together and at the end of the day um you know i'm getting a trip over to ireland with my girlfriend um, to go check out the exhibition, and that's that's a huge deal for me. Um, and there'll be a really cool catalog. So no matter what happens, like I'll always be able to look back and still see. Well, but for a collector, that's yeah. a big deal. I'm going to have this very professional document um, of my collection of what I built and what I put together, and I'll be able to you know to go back and, and look at that, and there'll yeah. still be something that exists. So. You know, I feel I feel good about about letting it go. I know I'm doing it for for the right reasons, and uh, and so yeah, so yeah. that's that. 
<laughs> so <laughs> so I think we've known each other for about 10 years. I think it was probably like 2002 or 2003. I think we met on the movie prop forum. Oh yeah. And uh the funny thing is, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know this, but I used to have like a a private forum with I don't know a dozen people and it was you, me, it was Brandon Allinger like way before Prop Store, it was Tom Spina way before Tom Spina designs. And so I yeah. actually got to sort of witness your full journey in collecting this stuff. Because I think when, when we met, I I don't know if you had anything at that point. I know you were really into Star Wars, and I think that's why yeah. we got connected and I got originally. into the hobby through Star Wars. Yeah. And you you definitely uh you definitely were into that as well. So we, we had a lot of conversations about lightsabers and stormtrooper blasters and and things like that yeah yeah star star wars was my gateway drug um (laughs) and i still you know i still adore star wars i still i mean i love i love the stuff from the original films i love those films i got into collecting movie props because i was collecting star wars toys like vintage star wars toys so my my sort of collecting journey. Yeah, because I remember, I, to... didn't, didn't you have one of the, the rocket-firing Boba Fetts? Oh, yeah, I had a yeah. couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, deal, the deal was, is so when I've, I've always been a collector. And when I was a kid, you know, and I still, Christ, I still have, like, my, I have a collection of Garbage Pail Kids from when I was a kid. <laughs> but here's the deal. My collection is not a box of Garbage Pail Kids. My collection <laughs> is photo albums where all the garbage fail kids are like perfectly <laughs> placed two by two. There's news clippings from USA Today that I was like cutting out as a little nine-year-old about garbage fail kids and how they were offending the country. Like it was an intense little, I had unused boxes, unused wrappers. Like I, that's what I did. And um, I got really into collecting comic books and reading comic books. I, I, was a, you know I used to draw I went to art school um I still uh I still like to read comic books but <laughs> I was the guy who when I was 12 would be at a comic book show and I didn't you know I I was big into like X-Men and so sort of my my little mind my little holy grails were like I need to get the first appearance of Wolverine right. I need to get you know giant size X-Men number 1 those were the things I went after, but yeah. I didn't just go after one. I bought like <laughs> seven near mint copies of them, you know, which at that point I was getting for like 30 to 50 bucks. Yeah. Well, I was collecting so my the little... same stuff at the same time, like Hulk 181 and all, all that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Introducing, um, <laughs> you know, Canada's first superhero. Yeah. The... With that bright yellow <laughs> and blue costume. In his, in his kitty cat whiskers. It's. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, but that's what my little nerdy collector mind was doing. And so what happened was by the time I was in college and was starting to, I mean, when I was in college was when Lucas was ramping up uh, on Star Wars again. Right. So, um, you know, whatever it was, 97 was when the special releases were out. Yeah. You know, so at that point, they're also ramping back up the toy lines. Mm-hmm. And that lit a fire in my belly because <laughs> I never had the Star Wars toys growing up. Oh, really? Um, and suddenly they're, they're coming out again, and I'm like, ooh, <laughs> oh, wait, oh, wait, I'm an adult now. <laughs> I can go buy some of the stuff that I couldn't have when I was a kid. Right. 
So I started really learning about vintage Star Wars toys. And like Gus Lopez's yeah. uh, website, his Toys R Gus, yeah. was like a, a Bible for me. That was sort of where I was learning you know, so much about what was out there, the stories behind it. And I, you know, I researched and researched. And when I first started, uh, there was a, a basically a newspaper called Toy Shop, yep. um, which I've been told is how people used to do it back in the day before this inter- internet. Thing. Yeah, I used to I used um, to put ads actually, and I used to sell like original comic book artwork and vintage Star oh, Wars yeah. toys and all kinds of stuff. So I mean, my my journey as a collector into these fields, it literally took place in in that sort of massive, you know, shift mm-hmm. into, into the internet. Um, the very first movie prop I bought, I bought on eBay, but it was so long ago that it was when like good stuff actually still showed up yeah. on eBay from yeah. time to time, um, you know, <laughs> but so I, I started learning about toys and being in a collector, I got really into prototypes. Um, and so by, by the time my toy collecting was ramping down, I had put together a, just an amazing collection of old prototype Boba Fett stuff. I had proof cards. I had, you know, toy samples that there was only one of. Um, I had a couple rocket firing Boba Fetts. Um, and I, and I loved this stuff and I was really into it until the first time I sold a rocket firing Boba Fett that I had bought maybe a year previous for like $6,000 and I sold it for like, I don't know, like 17 grand. Wow. (laughs) And it, you know, and when I had bought it, it was a huge deal for me. I went, I went after the star Wars stuff by selling my comic books. Yeah. So I converted the one collection to go after this new one. And it turned out that, that the comic book stuff had really appreciated. Yeah. I did the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. So suddenly, you know, I'm sitting there in college and I'm, you know, I'm pretty broke, but I'm, I'm buying this stuff using this other collection that I've sold. So I'm, I'm basically treating it like, like casino money. You know, it, I certainly wasn't buying this stuff from, from paychecks I was bringing home. I was still mm-hmm. eating ramen. Um, <laughs> but I sold that thing and it sort of was this massive eye opener. Like, well, Christ, like if I just sold a piece of plastic, it's a toy, you know, I wonder, I wonder if I could actually get something real from the film. Yeah. You know, basically the first time I was flipping a toy and, and, and selling a toy for, you know, fifteen, sixteen thousand $16,000, I started wondering if maybe I could find something from the actual films. And I really started researching movie props. That's when I, you know, found the movie prop forum that's when I, I found a number of other outlets that were around at the time and started meeting and, and talking to people and sort of learning everything I could. And, you know, I was jumping into a hobby that had been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of really, really knowledgeable people. There was a lot of history um, between different personalities <laughs> in the hobby. And I was also jumping into it to go after you know, a franchise of stuff that's sort of the most expensive blue chip genre stuff there is. Right. Um, I remember famously for me, and I I don't know if it's ever been updated, but, you know, Gus Lopez's site, when you'd click on the section for original movie props, it had like a paragraph of a paragraph of copy. 
you know, sort of talking about how hard to find Star Wars props are and how valuable they are. And it said something like, and just for example, you know, if you were to find yourself a real Stormtrooper helmet, it might cost you as much as $10,000. <laughs> and I definitely know that copy was still on there, you know, at least as recently as when helmets were publicly going for fifty and $60,000. Um, I don't know if it's still on there at the moment, yeah. but, you know, that was, that was in the late 90s and early 2000s, and obviously at this point, those things are bringing in six figures. Yeah. Um, but, so yeah, so I was jumping in, going after the most expensive stuff with not a lot of knowledge, and, you know, I made a lot of mistakes early on. I got burned. I, I, I got money stolen from me. Mm-hmm. Um, all sorts of fun things. And I had to get pretty smart pretty quickly. Um, but there was also a ton of people that just opened up to me and were incredibly happy to, uh, you know, answer questions and share knowledge. David Oliver, you know, you mentioned Mm -hmm. Brandon, um, Steve Lane, so many people yourself, uh, you know, Tom, these are people who, if I had questions about something, they were happy to share the information and answer it. And it was so cool. So for, you know, the, the the deals that went really bad where I got screwed because buyer beware and I wasn't really smart about how things worked. You know, there was also five, ten other people who were, you know, who didn't know me at all and still absolutely had my back. Right. Um, so it was a very cool hobby at that particular point in time to get into. And at the same time, the Internet was changing everything. eBay was really coming to its own and, you know, People in the past who had to, you know, travel to go find stuff. They had, right. you know, they had to, they had to physically go meet people to do stuff. Suddenly, you could do everything online. Um, you know, I'll tell you right now, my entire Lord of the Rings collection, while I have spoken at length with a lot of people who currently live in New Zealand, mm-hmm. I have never been to New Zealand. Right. I have never made it over there. I have put my entire collection together. Um, on the phone and through connections I've made on the internet. So it's definitely, it's definitely a whole new world. Um, so yeah, I went after the star Wars stuff and, uh, I actually ended up buying a number of lightsaber props from the prequels and sold those. And the selling of those lightsabers is what funded the Lord of the Rings collection. So it's sort of, it started with comic books, and I've just converted and converted, and now I have this collection, and this is going up for auction, and this isn't being sold to buy some other collection. Uh, right. This is, you know, this is being sold to to better my life. So while I still love movie props, and I'm not getting rid of it because I'm not interested, um, you know, there is I, I have been getting those questions. What's the next thing you're going to collect? Well, there isn't. <laughs> you know, like this is this is this is the end game for that. Um, and I've kept a couple pieces from Lord of the Rings and I still have a couple Star Wars pieces and, you know, at some point I'd, I'd, I'd still love a Stormtrooper helmet, but that, that doesn't seem real practical at this point. Yeah. But, you know, I, I love that stuff and I love this stuff and I've been a collector my whole life and it's been fun. You know, for anyone who does this stuff, the, the, the journey and the hunt is a, is a huge part of it. And, you know, you get to, 
you get to learn about the stuff you love. You get to, you know, if you're lucky, you get to actually hold, you know, some of these, some of these artifacts from your favorite films that have been held by some of your favorite actors. It's a very cool hobby. It's, it's got a lot of pitfalls in it and it's a very young hobby. And there's definitely sketchiness that goes on, you know, as there is in, in any hobby where, where large sums of money might be involved at times or even small ones. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's been, you know, it's been an incredible journey. I've met a lot of cool people, and it's been a very welcoming uh, community. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Can you talk a little bit about um, the key pieces that are going to be in the auction and kind of the flow, as you see it, of, of the auction catalog? Like, um... Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the... One of the things that I was excited to work with Julian's on on this is I knew I was going to have a lot of input <laughs> in, right. in, in all of the, the facets of how we did this. Um, they really, really know how to run an auction house, and they really know how to throw some big auctions, but they definitely don't know as much about Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings fans as I do. <laughs> so, you know, it was important to make sure that I was going to be part of that process. And it speaks volumes about them um, that they they get that and, you know, and that they don't have, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm glad that they are humble enough to understand that the person who has put all this together probably has some pretty good insight into you know, why people would find it exciting. Yeah. So, you know, I'm writing either, either myself or I've actually reached out to some other collectors in the hobby who know me and know this stuff to get help with writing some of the descriptions. Um, but, you know, everything's being, being either written by me or someone else close to me. Um, I'm helping with the layout, uh, you know, the flow of the auction uh, they seem to be into. And, and so it was important to me since it is a dedicated auction and a dedicated catalog, that the the flow of it made sense. Um, while I know that ultimately the end goal of the auction is the auction itself, the, the catalog is the thing that survives. Mm -hmm. And I also know that there's going to be a ton of fans out there um, who aren't going to have a chance to purchase anything from the auction, but they absolutely might still want the catalog. Right. Um, I absolutely would have gotten this catalog. This would have is is a is a Lord of the Rings nerd. I would have been all over the chance to get to see a bunch of this stuff. Um, so it was really important to me that the catalog be really well thought through. Um, so it's it's definitely rushed. Um, the time frame on putting this auction together has been really compressed because I didn't make the decision to do this until fairly recently. But at the same time, it was absolutely paramount to me that we, you know, that the auction took place in December. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't, I mean, if you talk to anyone at the auction house or at any auction house, they'd absolutely tell you that the time frame we're working on is not ideal. Right. So, I mean, I have been, I have been going like crazy. I have not been sleeping. I'm sure hair is, you know, turning white as we speak, <laughs> but, um, it is insanely important to me that this catalog is kick ass and that the catalog you know, lives up to people's expectations of the franchise. Because at this point, after 10 years, anyone who's a fan of this stuff, we have seen so many different publications, not just about the film, but even dedicated to the props. Mm -hmm. So we're used to seeing this stuff looking really good. <laughs> yeah. 
And I don't want to be the guy who puts something out there for the fans that looks crummy. Right. Um, so in terms of the actual flow of the auction, uh, there's a lot of considerations that went into it. But for the most part, I'm, I'm building it around the flow of the story of the films themselves. So uh, the pieces are sort of spread out chronologically. Uh, so you sort of start with items from the prologue scene of the first film of the last alliance of elves and men versus Sauron. And, uh, and then you sort of flow into Hobbiton and, and you sort of work your way through, um, you know, all the way up until the end and, uh, ending, ending with some rings and with Sauron's helmet and some stuff like that on the back end. So my hope is that it will, it'll make sense to people. I mean, obviously when you're putting a, uh, an auction like this together, you need to distribute items. You don't want to put all the really big ticket items right next to each other in one spot and then, you know, everything else. You you want to have a flow. You want to have something that helps people really, you know, get excited about it and get into it. But I'm I'm really pleased with the listing I put together and I was really happy when they liked it as well. So, you know, I, I think it's really cool. It makes sense to me as a fan. Um, and I think it'll, it'll, it'll be pretty cool when we, when we see the finished product, hopefully. And can you talk uh, a little bit about, um, the Hasbro pieces and that whole sweepstakes and which pieces yeah. were out there and which ones you ended up with? Yeah. Um, so in 2003, um, the final Lord of the Rings movie Return of the King came out in December of 2003 and leading up to that release, uh, New Line Cinema licensed Hasbro toys to run a promotion. Um, it was called Win the Sword of Aragorn. And it was a little misleading because the, there was eight grand prizes. Uh, and they were the Sword of Aragorn, Frodo's sword, Sting, Legolas's bow, uh, Eowyn's sword, Theoden's sword, uh, Faramir's sword, Gandalf's sword, uh, Gimli's axe. I feel like I probably just rattled them all off. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's but, it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you bought a copy of Risk or Trivial Pursuit or Stratego that summer in the U.S., you could enter into this contest to win. It was only available to uh, U.S. citizens, which upset a lot of fans outside of the U.S., but, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what you get for living outside of the U.S. <laughs> um you know, I was I was pretty blown away that they were doing this. And actually, the last month leading up to the drawing, they had all of the props on display uh, at the Toys R Us in Times Square in New York. Um, each of the props came sort of permanently sealed in a in a plexiglass case, and they were all on display and out. And they actually had a ninth prop um, for that month that was on display that you could enter to win at the Toys R Us. Hmm. So while we often say that the contest was for eight props, there was actually nine props ultimately given away. And the prop that was given away at, uh, at the New York Toys R Us was, uh, Wormtongue's dagger, which was, uh, Wormtongue was played by Brad Dereef, who, you know, has been in a ton of stuff. Um, he was the voice of Chucky also. Hmm. So he's, he's just a very, very cool character actor who pops up and stuff all the time. But so his dagger was also given away. Um, so this contest went on. It was also a no purchase necessary thing. I, I think I mailed off like 50, <laughs> 50 entries to it I, over a course of about a week. 
probably, you know, it was, it was almost carpal tunnel inducing. <laughs> and I, I did win a deck of cards. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. Almost won, as good. A, yeah. It was, I, I think one of the third, third place prizes that there was a thousand of them given out. <laughs> but, um, so that happened. But then the unique thing that happened is, is they drew a winner once a week for eight weeks counting down to the final film. So each week I would be anxiously awaiting on the Hasbro site for them, and they would post the name of the winner and their hometown. Yeah. So <laughs> while I didn't win, I also had a name in a hometown of all the people who did. Um, and so with that helpful bit of information... I set off to try to track these people down. Um, the owner of the Legolas bow also <laughs> did a similar thing. And the owner of the bow... The, you mean the eventual owner of the second yeah, owner. The, the, the second owner. <laughs> right. second owner. The second owner basically looked in the yellow pages and got a phone number for the original owner. Mm -hmm. So that is how that little dandy piece was secured was <laughs> was with a phone call and and some convincing um the four pieces i got were aragorn's sword uh frodo's sword gimli's axe and eowyn's sword and each of them had a pretty good story um gimli's axe was the first prop the first significant prop i uh, i got from the films gimli's axe from the contest I won on eBay. Yeah, and I remember that because I remember there was a big discussion about it on the movie platform at the time, and it seemed like oh, a yeah. lot of people were interested in it. It was a huge deal to a point. Um, so the deal was um, this little this girl in Ithaca, New York, won the prop. So effectively, her her parents sort of won the prop, mm -hmm. and they had it and they loved it. But one of their friends was like, you know what? That might be worth a lot of money. Right. And that could be like a first car for her, you know, mm -hmm. like college tuition. Right. They're like, why don't you just try throwing it on eBay? Because these props, the paperwork that came with them said they had a, a retail value of $1,000. <laughs> like that was the tax that you had to pay on it, $1,000. So they're like, why don't you put it on eBay, put a huge price on it and just see. Right. And they threw it up on eBay with a $20,000 price tag, which... At that time, even, for a prop from a brand-new film, mm -hmm. um, that was an extraordinary price tag. Yeah, because um, back then, I think that's when that was pretty much the price of a Stormtrooper helmet. If I yep, can, it can absolutely was. get my timeline was. right, I think that's about what those were going for at the time. Yep, and the conversation that was happening online, you know, it wasn't that people weren't interested, but at this point... This was when everyone still thought everything was going to hit the floodgate. Right. Like, this was right in the time period when everyone just sort of assumed as soon as, as, soon as Return of the King came out, New Line Cinema was just going to sell off everything. Right. And so I did not have money. I actually took out a, a small loan from my father with the promise that if I did manage to get it, um, I would be immediately selling my Star Wars props and would like get him his money back, you know, within a month. Right. And he was he was nice enough to be like, well, if you're serious, 
and you're going to do that, like, right. you know, I, I maybe can help you if it doesn't go too much further than where it's at. Right. And so, you know, I sat in a little apartment in Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> and it was an eBay auction. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> you have no idea what's going to happen at the end. So I, I waited and I put a bid in and one other person bid. And I think it only ended up being like three or four bids between the two of us because the final price went to $25,000, right. which, you know, I'd never spent that kind of money in my life on anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very convinced of the value of the piece. I was completely convinced that it, well, I wouldn't say completely, but I felt fairly secure that stuff wasn't going to start pouring out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it was still, it was a gamble and I took a flyer on it and I bought it. And, you know, that one Gimli acts absolutely marks the only significant prop that has been publicly sold up until the Legolas bow this right. past Christmas. So that is from 2004, early 2004 until 2012, that nothing significant has been seen. And would you um, say those two pieces are are equivalent, or do you think one has a higher value than the other? I think the Legolas bow is, is a better piece for collectors just because of Orlando Bloom and mm-hmm. the character of Legolas. But on a whole, um, you know, they are in the same ballpark. Right. Um, those contest props, the deal is, is they didn't just very publicly come from the studio. And they come with a certificate of authenticity right. signed by Barry Osborne, who's the producer of the films. And the certificate, it, it straight up says, like, this, you know, this was used during filming. Right. I'm Barry Osborne. <laughs> like, <laughs> here, here you go. You know, so for some props that were given away valued at $1,000 to one that was sold publicly for 25 and then, you know, in 2012, you've got another one going for close, you know, like almost four hundred thousand dollars. Right. There's clearly interest there. Yeah. Um. So I bought that one prop on eBay, and kept looking, kept searching. I ultimately tracked down the owner of the Ewan Sword, who they were from Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri, <laughs> which is not that far from where I live, and also incidentally where the original Death Star prop was ultimately found. Um. <laughs> that is currently I, I believe still with with gus out uh out on out in the pacific northwest somewhere yeah. but so yeah apparently apparently there's some sort of prop prop <laughs> hub of energy that happens in the lake of the ozarks <laughs> but so i found them and i probably talked to them for five or six months um before i convinced them to sell that sword and uh i tracked down the guy who had sting um he was a pastor in Michigan hmm. and I ended up meeting him and it was, it was very, uh, it was very James Bond esque. <laughs> like the two of us agreed to meet in the parking lot of like, <laughs> I don't know. It was, it, it was like a Denny's or something. It was, <laughs> I mean, it was, where were we? We were, we met up in Appleton, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. So it was like a six hour drive for me and like a six hour drive from him. And we met up, and you know he got an envelope from me. <laughs> he handed me this box with with Sting, and and we took a, some pictures of ourselves, which I can't find to this day anywhere. Oh no! Um, 
you know, and so that was that was that. And then the Aragorn sword, I think that took me six years to find. Um, that woman was from Clovis, New Mexico, this little tiny town in New Mexico. And I ultimately ended up getting in touch with her because I figured a town that small, I think I like, I don't know if I called the local newspaper or the local library or something, but I, I, I managed to get a message to her. And then, and then it was quite a while before she agreed to part with that. But in the case of all of those contest pieces, those were the things that I spent for me a considerable amount of money on. Yeah. Um, for these people, they had won the grand prize in a contest. Right. You know, this was like the coolest thing. I, I'm not going to go as far to say it's the coolest thing that's ever happened in their lives. I, I have no idea, but it would have been really cool to me. And they didn't necessarily want to part with them. So I, you know, I was, I was trying to make that happen. In the case of pretty much everything else in my collection, though, you know, I, I was not having to pay those extraordinary prices. And that's the reason I was ultimately able to do what I did, is I, 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 sold, I sold the Star Wars stuff and had my Star Wars money, but I made it go really, really far. Yeah. Um, I, I got lucky with the Star Wars stuff in that when I flipped those, I mean, I, was, I purchased stuff from the prequels, and ended up selling it through profiles, and in most cases, in not more than two or three years after the fact. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, they went for large multiples of what I paid. And right. so that's what, that's what bankrolled the collection. Um, so, but yeah, those, those contest props, they're, they're pretty much as good as you could hope to get if you're, you know, if you're a prop collector. It's... Uh, for years and years and years, there was no such thing as a is really a COA. But now we live in the era of studio auctions, mm. and so you've got a whole breed of collectors that if they don't have paperwork from the studio, even if that paperwork from the studio really has no idea what it's talking about, which right. does happen, right? You know, it'll be official paperwork from the studio, but whoever made it doesn't necessarily know whether something was screen used or not. You see that all the time, yeah. but. Still, expectations are different for people entering into this hobby. Um, and rightfully so, people should be skeptical. They're, they're, you've, you've got a blog that's, that's, you know, a whole chunk of it is dedicated to how much shenanigans there is in this hobby. Yeah. Um, well, does, does, and so, it, doesn't it strike you as kind of interesting, though, because, I, you know, you were talking about some of the experiences you had early on and getting ripped off and stuff that one person in mind, you know, comes to mind in particular is still out there <laughs> doing the same stuff. You know what I mean? That's like 10 years later. Well, and where's, because where's the there's constantly new people pouring into the hobby. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned like the movie prop forum. I spent years on that and it was more or less, I sort of recognized everybody, even the people that I didn't really know anything about them. I would, I would recognize their, their names and their avatars right. or whatever. I hop on there now. I don't, I don't know anybody on there and right. I have not continued to actively engage just cause I'm too darn busy with my job and life and things that happen. But so I got away from that for a few years and I don't know who any of those people are. Right. You know, they certainly seem like nice people, yeah. but clearly the hobby is growing at a or at least it seems to me like it's growing yeah um you know and things like the 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 onset of studio auctions and stuff has a lot to do with that because you know unlike 
unlike sort of the traditional ways I learned to go about finding this stuff, when the studio does an auction, studio's putting the marketing department behind it. Right. <laughs> you know, studio is getting the word out. And these are also things that I watch very closely. And I assure you, you know, that has influenced the decisions I've made about how I've decided to go about selling my collection. Because I really, you know, there's so many good things that can come out of the way the studios will do auctions if they're done well, right. um, that are healthy for the hobby and that, that are good for uh, potential buyers. And so it was important to me to try to really look at some of the things that I like about that and try to mimic it to an extent. I mean, nobody's going to look at my, well, no, nobody who's put any effort into looking at it is going to look at my auction and think it's a studio auction. Like, right. it's very clear that it comes from a private collector. We went out of our way to make that very clear in the press release mm-hmm. right up front that this is, this is coming from a private collector. But, you know, everything from a, the look and feel and the presentation of how I've seen very successful studio auctions work is what I'm trying to bring to the table with this. Um, and because there's so much stuff from one franchise, it works. I didn't want to take my collection and just throw it at the back of another, you know, annual prop catalog coming out from profiles or Julian's. I just, I really thought that the collection was important enough to function on its own Mm -hmm. and to be an event auction and to warrant, um, you know, the dedicated press and marketing push that would come with that. And that seems to be the case. Right. Um, the press release dropped, and it, I mean, it, it made the rounds worldwide very quickly. Um, people are very interested in this stuff, and people love Lord of the Rings. And, you know, on the back end of all of this, take the movie aside, there also happens to be some beloved books that these mm-hmm. films are based on, you know, that have decades of, of, of a diehard fan base. So there's a lot there to get people excited. So from the get-go, this was how I wanted to attack this. And uh, so far, I feel really good. I feel really good about the choices I've made and the decisions. And I agonized over them for a long time. Yeah, Um, I know. You know, I was talking talking to people about the possibility of selling this collection for a long time. But I wasn't certain until really recently. Yeah. but, you know, basically this entire year, um, it's been something that's been on my mind. And so I was trying to sort of gather information and talk to people about options and really think about, well, God, if I actually pulled the trigger on this, how would I do it? Mm-hmm. And if I, because I knew if I did it, this would be, I, I will never do anything like this again. I mean, right. this, is, this is sort of the craziest thing I've ever been involved with. And for a lot of people, I'd say a great deal of people who collect in our hobby you know, they don't put themselves out there. This, this is, right. you know, there's, there are amazing collections of film props all over the world that, that never see the light of day. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of legitimate reasons for that. And then there's also just the reasons that are people are people and collectors are collectors and it takes all different kinds. But I mean, I'm, I'm sort of very publicly putting myself out there in a way that's not very comfortable. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily like having to talk about my personal business. I don't necessarily like, you know, people knowing that I might potentially do something that has a big windfall. Right. But 
you know, I also knew to do this the way we need to do it while I wasn't about to stick a picture of my face on a press release. Um, people already know about my collection. Right. Um, my mother got a phone call from the press in New Zealand the night the press release went out <laughs> because they had put together, because I've done exhibitions in the right. past and have done interviews on like local television. People figured it out pretty quickly. Yeah. And so at that point, it, it, it became important to me to, you know, make myself somewhat available and, and, you know, and talk about the collection and talk it up and also let people know, you know, if they're curious sort of why it's happening. Right. Um, exactly. You know, cause I, I do think that's an important part of the story. Um, I, I ha- what I'm trying to do, I have not really seen done like this before. And uh, it means I don't have, I don't have a lot to go by. So again, I'm, I'm looking at what I've learned in years privately and then what I have watched at the big auction houses, what I've watched with studio auctions, and I'm just trying to make the best choices I can to make this successful. Because at the end of the day, if I'm, if I'm getting rid of this thing that I love dearly <laughs> and I've spent you know, over 10 years of my life putting together, I want it, I want it to be as successful as possible. So you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for sure, but hopefully, hopefully it'll, it'll go well. Yeah. So one last question. What do you think it's going to be like when you go to Ireland and see all this stuff on exhibit? Because you've never really experienced your own collection that way before, even though no. you own it all. So. No, it's, it's going to be crazy, at least for me. And I, but I, honestly, I think I'm really excited that I am getting this sort of closure. Right. <laughs> you right. know? It's not like I'm just boxing everything up and never seen it again. I get to go to Ireland with the woman I love and like because of this collection. Right. And I get to go to a to a gorgeous museum and I get to watch other people getting really excited seeing the collection. Um it's I think it's gonna be really powerful and yeah. it's one of those things that makes me feel better, you know, about getting rid of it. It's it's you know it's two years ago, I went on a two-week-long tour of the West Coast with the Lord of the Rings in concert, um, which at that point was the craziest thing I've ever done in my life. Right. Uh, there was <laughs> five, five tour buses, two of which were the entire Munich Symphony Orchestra, uh, very few of which spoke English. Um, there was the two buses of the Pacific Corral, um, of which my girlfriend and I were on that bus. And then the Arizona Boys Choir was on another bus. And we traveled for two weeks up and down the West Coast playing arenas, hockey arenas. <laughs> so, you know, there'd be all, all the roadies and all the equipment w- was sort of their own thing. So we would arrive each day at an arena, and all the music folks would go and get set up. And then my girlfriend and I would have to go find my props, which, um, you know... It, <laughs> We wouldn't know where they were each day. We'd have to go find them and then wheel them up and find a place to set them up. And we'd do the whole setup. And then the two of us would be responsible for security. So it was just like <laughs> me and my girlfriend in some rope stanchions um, <laughs> holding back 5,000 people from our props. So people would, like, go onto the ropes to try to, like, take pictures. And my girlfriend would, you know, try to make herself look big. And be like, no! <laughs> um, and we'd do this, and it was incredibly stressful but because of the way things worked, we had to be ready to go at the end of the performance. So 
the performance would start, we would typically just be finishing putting everything together as they were opening the doors. One time they actually opened the doors and one of the helmets went missing for about 45 minutes because um, one of the people who worked there saw that it was sitting out and didn't <laughs> tell me but just like took it so it would be safe. But then no one could tell me what happened to it. So I thought something was stolen at one point. So the doors would open and people would come in and we'd do the, you know, there'd be tons of people crowded around. It'd be very exciting. And then the show would start. And what they were doing was they were projecting the entire first film on a giant screen above the symphony and the choir. And every beat of music from the films was performed live. Um, it's actually a very cool process. Um, but so we were out in the lobby. And so everyone would go in to watch it. And then we'd just sort of hang out. I'd maybe have a, a beer or two to calm my nerves. And, uh, <laughs> And then they'd have an intermission. Uh, the movie would be broken halfway through. They'd have an intermission. Everyone would come out. They'd crowd around again. And then the second that intermission ended and everyone went back in, my girlfriend and I would just furiously start <laughs> breaking everything down. Because um, at that point, we basically had an hour and a half to take everything down, get it sealed back up in crates, you know, and get it wheeled back downstairs to some roadies with a truck. And every single night of the tour, we would be pushing the final boxes, you know, through, through the lobby as everyone was coming out. <laughs> and that's what we did. We'd be in a truck for 12 hours, a bus for 12 hours a day. We wouldn't be allowed to pee or, or use the bathroom on the bus or people would yell at you. So you're like not <laughs> drinking water. You're getting dehydrated. Every meal you're eating was fast food. And this is what we did for two weeks. And this was basically my girlfriend and I's third date. <laughs> and we totally fell in love on this trip. <laughs> like, instead of the insanity of us ripping us apart, because it was sort of like, well, we just met, yeah, and I'm going on this thing. Quite a test. And if you, yeah, if you, if you want to go with me, um, meet me in Arizona, and just, just don't get a return ticket. And then that way, <laughs> at any point, at any city, if you, you need to, if you need to bail, <laughs> you just don't get back on the bus. <laughs> and and she ended up staying on the bus the whole two weeks and then coming back to St. Louis with me to celebrate my birthday. And this was two years ago this week. Wow. Because the Cardinals were were in the World Series and I was desperately trying to find TVs <laughs> in all the arenas to, to see the Cardinals. And my birthday is on the 26th. And so nerd tour as we lovingly refer to it <laughs> ended and she came back to st louis to celebrate my birthday for a week and then basically like a month later she permanently came back to st louis and um you know we totally first told each other we were in love on nerd tour <laughs> so for you know whatever else is going on with selling this stuff there's been so much good that's come from it and so much fun and so much joy obviously a lot of anxiety and stress as well. Yeah. And, you know, and towards the end, the collection has given me, you know, a couple really, really cool experiences to share with the woman I love who, you know, she's, she's down with Lord of the Rings, but she's by no means <laughs> super, you know, super into to movies like I am, but she's right. also very understanding. <laughs> and, uh, and now, Two years later, you know, basically almost to the week, the collection is sending us on a trip for a week to Ireland. And so, you know, to answer your question, it's I think it's it's going to be uh, some pretty amazing closure on something. 
And then, you know, about a month later, the two of us are going to fly to, uh, to L.A. for the auction, which I, you know, that's, I don't even know how I'm <laughs> going to be okay with that. There's been jokes made about how I'll probably be wearing, you know, adult diapers and <laughs> be heavily, heavily medicated because auctions in general stress me out. Like yeah. just, just the energy of them, um, gets me going. But for me, this is sort of my, you know, this is me and my family's sort of, you know, nest egg going forward. I don't, I don't have a nest egg outside of this collection. Like, right. I got my paycheck from the brewery and then I have this collection of props. And so when those things start going under the hammer, there's a lot of different ways that can go. Yeah. (laughs) I'm, I'm not going to be angry or upset or disappointed if it doesn't, you know, perform super well. I think for me, if it just happens and, you know, and it goes, that's enough for me. I'll be really, I'll be really happy because there's been so many spinning plates to pull something like this off. And it's, it's, it's pretty scary and it's pretty intense. So, you know, if it all goes well, cool. And, uh, that's, that's really all I can ask for. I think you should just sit back and enjoy it. Let well, I'm definitely, I'm definitely, when I go to Ireland, I'm unplugging the whole week. Yeah. Like, I'm, I am going to take, after everything, you know, and I also, my, my job is doing social media. So I'm staring at my phone <laughs> or my laptop pretty much all day long in between, you know, doing what I do for my brewery and sort of overseeing and managing this, this project. Uh, my nerves are pretty fried, so I am really excited to go uh, put on a sweater, order a Guinness, <laughs> and like sit by a fire in a bed and breakfast with my girlfriend and not think about any of this for a, a week. Yeah, um, you just got to send me a picture. Oh yeah, I'll totally. I'll t- well, here's the other thing. Um, when I go to this, the sting sword, I've never held it in my hands. The oh, sting sword, it's in the which case? Is, it's in the case, and uh... it's not like it's sealed within i mean you can open the top of the case and touch it yeah but there's little acrylic holders holding it in there so unless you broke those off or cut those off you can't remove it and because i'm a collector i'm like well i shouldn't do that that'll that'll hurt the 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 provenance you know and then when the bow sold and i talked to profiles i'm like yes so i'm you obviously took it out of the case for the photography and they're like yeah we very carefully you know, had someone who deals with that stuff very carefully removed, you know, the two pieces, the case is still intact. So the owner, and I'm like, well, gee, why didn't I ever think of that? Like, right. <laughs> so all this, time, so I'm totally at the very least, when I go out there, going to be like, you need to open that. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to open that case up for a second for me. Right. You gotta, like you got to do the He-Man like, pose, right? <laughs> oh man. Or, or the Thundercats. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, whatever it takes, but I'm, I need to get that thing in my hand and do it and do a little photo montage with it. Um, so that'll probably be my last hurrah just make sure I don't drop the damn thing. But yeah, yeah so that's, that's what's going on. It's been, it's been a ride for sure. And, um, you know, I have a brain full of research and knowledge that is about to be rendered fairly <laughs> fairly useless so maybe maybe there's some way i can sort of get some of that out of there and make room for something else but uh 
you know, it's been great. It's been, it's been an amazing ride. And, uh, mostly I just feel really grateful, uh, to be in the position I'm in right now and to have been able to meet folks like you and folks on the forums and, you know, a lot of the people that I've, I've met through collecting this stuff. I've gotten to talk to a lot of people who worked on the films that I love. Yeah. And that's, that's incredibly cool. That's sort of at the end of the day, what it's all about. Right. Um, for folks who collect this stuff, it's, it's, it's being able to have a, a little bit more of a personal connection to something that you love. And, uh, you know, I've been able to have that and it's, it's, it's something that's very special. Cool. All right. Well, we've been in touch throughout this whole thing and I'm, I'm looking forward to the continual updates, but, uh, <laughs> I think we'll wrap, yep. we'll wrap this one up now. And uh, if people have any questions or whatnot, they can always uh, post to the Yeah, they can the they can reach out or, to you, and I'm yeah. I'm fairly accessible. I've actually got a Twitter account that's at Rings Props, um, where I'm going to be just sort of posting out little behind-the-scenes uh, pictures of a bunch of stuff, just little tidbits that I think will be interesting to uh, to folks. Any, yeah, anybody looking for more information on the auction, just go to juliansauctions.com. Um, their website's going to have specifics on the dates when they're going to be having showings uh, in Beverly Hills. And then, of course, there's also the exhibition that's going on in Ireland for about a month, starting on the 23rd, I believe, of October. Cool. Well, thanks for taking so much time to talk to me today, and hopefully uh, people enjoyed learning a little bit more about Troika. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for listening to our program, Prop Talk. For the latest news about the world of original television and movie memorabilia, please visit us online at www.originalpropblog.com.